We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Okay, we're uh, continuing our, our way through Psalms. We'll be in Psalms 37 and 38 tonight. Psalm 37. Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity. For they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret, it only causes harm. For evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. For yet a little while, and the wicked shall be no more. Indeed, you will look carefully for his place, but it shall be no more. But the meek shall inherit the earth, and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. The wicked plots against the just and gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked have drawn the sword and have bent their bow to cast down the poor and the needy, to slay those who are of upright conduct. Their sword shall enter their own heart, and their bows shall be broken. A little that a righteous man has is better than the riches of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, and the Lord upholds the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the upright, and their inheritance shall be forever. They shall not be ashamed in the evil time. And then in the days of famine, they shall be satisfied. But the wicked shall perish. And the enemies of the Lord, like the splendor of the meadows, shall vanish. Into smoke they shall vanish away. The wicked borrows and does not repay. But the righteous shows mercy and gives for those blessed by him shall inherit the earth, but those cursed by him 
shall be cut off. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. I have been young, and now am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his descendants begging bread. He is ever merciful, and lends, and his descendants are blessed. Depart from evil, and do good, and dwell forevermore. For the Lord loves justice, and does not forsake his saints. They are perceived forever. I'm sorry, they are preserved forever. But the descendants of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell in it forever. The mouth of the righteous speaks wisdom, and his tongue talks of justice. The law of his God is in his heart. None of his steps shall slide. The wicked watches the, the righteous and seeks to slay him. The Lord will not leave him in his hand, nor condemn him when he is judged. Wait on the Lord and keep his way, and he shall exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you shall see it. I have seen the wicked in great power, and spreading himself like a native green tree. Yet he passed away, and behold, he was no more. Indeed, I sought him, but could not be found. Mark the, bla uh, the blameless man, and observe the upright. For the future of that man is peace, but the transgressors shall be destroyed together. The future of the wicked shall be cut off, but the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in the time of trouble, and the Lord shall help them and deliver them. He shall deliver them from the wicked and save them, because they trust in him. Psalm 38. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your wrath, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. For your arrows pierce me deeply, and your hand presses me down. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your anger, nor any health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head. Like a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. My wounds are foul and festering because of my foolishness. I am troubled. I am bowed down greatly. I go mourning all the day long, for my loins are full of inflammation, and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and severely broken. I groan because of the turmoil of my heart. Lord, all my desire is before you, and my sighing is not hidden from you. My heart pants, my strength fails me. As for the light of my eyes, it also 
has gone from me. My loved ones and my friends stand aloof from my plague. And my relatives stand afar off. Those who seek my life lay snares for me. Those who seek my hurt speak of destruction and plan deception all the day long. But I, like a deaf man, do not hear. And I am like a mute who does not open his mouth. Thus, I am like a man who does not hear and whose mouth is no response. For in you, O Lord, I hope you will hear, O Lord, my God. For I said, hear me, lest they rejoice over me, lest when my foot slips, they exalt themselves against me. For I am ready to fall, and my sorrow is continually before me. For I will declare my iniquity. I will be in anguish over my sin. But my enemies are vigorous, and they are strong. And those who hate me wrongfully have multiplied. Those also who render evil for good, they are my adversaries. And because I follow what is good, do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. Thank you, Drew, for that reading. I'll just make one note. Of course, there's a lot that could be said from those two chapters, but uh, I remember as a, as a teen, I often thought on the words of Psalm 37, 1 through 7, and um, I came to a, a better understanding of that text uh, the older I got. But I'll draw your attention just for a moment to verses 3 and 4. Uh, David writes, trust in the Lord and do good, dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Of course, oriented around the nation of Israel and their blessing in the land if they're faithful to him. Uh, But then verse 4, delight yourself also in the Lord and he shall give you the desires of your heart. And uh, I remember reading that as a young person thinking, well, if I do, uh, if I delight myself in God, he will give me what I want. But that's not what the text is teaching. Rather, what David is relaying is that if we delight ourselves in the Lord, he will plant in us the desires that he has for us in our heart. He will give us the right kind of desires for life. And so perhaps that's instructive to some young folk out there or older as you consider you know, this text and how that relates to your life and orienting ourselves around the things of God and delighting in those things rather than just seeking things that we want that are often not uh, within the will of God. So thank you, Drew, for reading that. This evening, we are taking a break from the doctrinal statement and uh, moving back into a book of the Bible, as is our common practice and how we see uh, 
most of our instruction should be as we come together and gather as the assembly. And uh, I've decided uh, to uh, lead us through the book of Ephesians in the uh, weeks and months ahead, Lord willing. And so really this evening is just an introduction to the book, some of the kind of basic things we typically see when we do an introduction. And then the other thing that I want to accomplish, Lord willing, this evening is to trace what I see as the principal theme of the book of Ephesians throughout the book. So we'll look at a number of texts, really kind of just getting a sampling of, of from each chapter and how that really kind of comes together to form this overarching theme. Now, that's not to say that there's not sub-themes or other topics mentioned throughout the book of Ephesians. Certainly, that's the case. There's many doctrinal matters that Paul covers, many very practical matters that Paul uh, teaches, uh, teaches us about. But all of this, I do believe, comes back to one overarching theme, which we'll look at uh, later on in, in the second half kind of, of our time here. I don't plan to keep you very long this evening, but I do want this to be helpful as we kind of embark on this new uh, study into Ephesians. If I am recalling correctly, uh, Pastor and I were kind of communicating back and forth about this and where to go next, and he has a preaching calendar. I think the last time that uh, we were instructed in this book was back in 2008 and maybe nine or something like that. Uh, that's not to say other messages probably weren't preached, you know, on certain sections of the book. So it's been some time. Uh, certainly before my time here since uh, we've looked at Ephesians, so it's uh, high time that we do that and uh, see what Paul has for us uh, in this wonderful letter this evening. That's just to go to prayer one more time here before we look in, into uh, God's Word. Heavenly Father, would your Spirit instruct us, guide us, help us. Lord, we, uh, remove any distractions now that might be upon our minds. Lord, May we be enriched, enlightened, uh, and uh, go away with a greater gratitude for the Apostle Paul and his writing under the superintending work of the Spirit, Lord, to help us, teach us, and edify us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. The book of Ephesians, really an epistle, as we call it, is classified often or always really as a prison epistle because we can conclude from that that this epistle was written while Paul was imprisoned in Rome. Paul also wrote a, wrote a number of other epistles during his imprisonment. Uh, his, probably during his first imprisonment, he wrote the book of Colossians and Philemon and also possibly Philippians as well. And uh, we've, we know that uh, Paul was in prison when he wrote to the Philippians. We find this in chapter 1, verse 19, uh, for roughly two years for, during his first imprisonment. And so uh, ample time to write a number of letters, you know, as you're kind of sitting there uh, and uh, not uh, able to go too far away or do much in that sense. So plenty of time to write these letters and to, be, uh, to instruct the various congregations that Paul had had some ministry with uh, before then. And so uh, it's very likely then Ephesians was written during this first imprisonment sometime in the early 60s. Uh, and uh, maybe not knowing exactly what year, but maybe 60 or 61. We know that uh, Paul had been arrested previously in Jerusalem, 
transferred to Caesarea and held there for two years. Acts 24-27 gives us this understanding. Assuming Paul wrote Ephesians in the early 60s then, it was in the wake of more instances of Jewish uh, rejection of the gospel. You remember Paul, at the very beginning of his ministry uh, and journeys, spent uh, the time preaching in the synagogues to a primarily Jewish audience. That's not to say that there weren't God-fearing Gentiles there, but primarily speaking to the Jewish community. But as time went on, and as the Jews began to demonstrate that they were, had little to no interest uh, in the gospel of Christ, Paul then ventured then to reach to, out to the Gentiles. And uh, we see this even in Acts 19. I'll, in, I'll invite you to turn there just for a moment. Acts 19, we see this instance. Remember, as you're turning there, uh, we just finished our study a, a little while ago in 1 Timothy that Timothy was ministering in what church? The church in Ephesus, where Paul had been for a a number of years, we perceive, but then uh, had to leave. And uh, and so he leaves Timothy there to minister in that congregation. And so it's to this church and to, I will argue, a number of other churches that uh, Paul is writing this book of Ephesians. But uh, Acts 19 We find uh, here in the beginning, in verse 1, it says, And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth, that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. Um, And finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. So we have here some believers uh, who were uh, taught in the things of God, but had not yet heard uh, all the revelation that had been given up to this time concerning uh, things like the Holy Spirit. So, verse 3, And he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. So they obviously had heard some about John's ministry and baptism of repentance, all that thing, all those things uh, concerning uh, John's ministry, but uh, not all the revelation Uh, after that that had come verse 4 then paul said and john indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him that is on christ jesus when they heard this they were baptized into the name of the lord jesus and when paul had laid hands on them the holy spirit came upon them and they spoke with tongues and prophesied now the men were about 12 in all so just a small group of disciples in Ephesus, not a large crowd, but a very, very small one, kind of like the gathering, the disciples that gathered around Christ, uh, that is, you know, the inner kind of uh, disciples of Christ. Verse 8, and he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months. Uh, so for some time, reasoning there in the synagogue, where, again, we said the Jews uh, were his primary audience. And he was there reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way, a common uh, terminology for the Christian faith at that time, uh, before the multitude he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And so he really kind of then departs from the Jewish community and begins to preach 
uh, to a broader audience. And that continued for some time. In fact, he says, for two years, so that all who dwell in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks, Jews and Gentiles. So uh, we see Paul's ministry broadening here, even in Ephesus, beginning in the synagogue, but then uh, moving, uh, kind of broadening out that ministry to the Greeks or the Gentiles as well. Uh, Then turn over, if you would, just uh, to Acts 28. We're just uh, verse 28. Kind of seeing here, sampling the fact that uh, Paul's ministry was not solely to the Jews. In fact, uh, he he really categorizes himself or characterizes himself as a uh, as a minister to the Gentiles. Acts twenty eight. And. Uh, Look with me at verse 23. So when they had appointed him a day, many many came to him at his lodging, to whom he explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God, persuading persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets from morning till evening. Um... So this is while he's uh, imprisoned here, house arrest, I believe. And some were persuaded by the things which were spoken, and some disbelieved. So when they did not agree among themselves, they departed after Paul had said one word. The Holy Spirit spoke rightly through Isaiah the prophet to our fathers, saying, Go to this people and say, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand. And seeing you will see and not perceive. So he's really kind of indicting uh, those who are disbelieving, the Jews, uh, perhaps Gentiles as well, though, uh, who were in the hearing there. For the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing. Their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will hear it. And when they had said these words, the Jews departed and had a great dispute among themselves. Then Paul uh, dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. And so just another instance here that... uh, Again, Paul's ministry was uh, broadening out because of the Jews' rejection of the gospel. And so even in the church in Ephesus here, we see a great, uh, a great number of Gentiles. And Paul will speak to that very issue, though, though not really an issue, but that uh, the church is not made up of just Jews. We know that, uh, certainly but also Gentiles. But remember, this is early on in the church, and so there is more of this uh, this just not disturbance, but really just a trying to understand how is it that God is now you know uh, bringing in the Gentiles into this work of redemption, and how does that flush out in the church? We're kind of distanced from that by many centuries having gone by. It's not as much of an issue for us today because we have more revelation. We have, you know, all of the New Testament to see how God is do exactly doing this. But if you could put yourselves in the shoes of them at this time, you know, just, uh, you know, 
less than three decades after Christ's death, and trying to understand how is it that God is doing this and what, how are we to, uh, to think about this. So that's a little bit about the origin of, of the letter and uh, Paul's ministry to the Jews and Gentiles. And, but uh, who, who are the recipients of this letter? Perhaps uh, you know, we find it quite uh, straightforward. Paul writes in verse 1 of Ephesians 1, Uh, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. So Paul identifies here the Ephesians as the recipients of the letter. But uh, I argue that there are good reasons to believe that Paul did not intend for it to be uh, a letter for solely one congregation. Uh, certainly, it included the uh, con- con- congregation that we've, you know, we read about in, uh, in 1 Timothy, where Paul is ministering. But uh, it seems that it is also a letter to, intended to be circulated throughout many house churches in Ephesus. Uh, Ephesus was a very large city. I didn't look up, you know, population or anything like that at that time. I'm not even sure we know, you know, a good number for that, but a very large city. And, uh, you know, imagine, you know, a city like perhaps Detroit. You know, there's more than one good church there. I think we can agree on that. And to have a one church would mean, you know, probably, you know, a very massive, massive, you know, congregation. It's just unlikely at that time that that was the kind of uh, structure there were to the churches. So, very, uh, very much uh, possible that these were house churches scattered throughout Ephesus that, of course, had some association, so much so that, you know, it seems likely Paul could say to the saints who are in Ephesus, which would include all of these house churches uh, throughout Ephesus, not just one particular congregation. More than that, though, not only perhaps uh, you know house churches in Ephesus, but other congregations in the surrounding region of Asia Minor too. You know, in the end, many of these letters were circulated. In fact, Paul uh, told them, uh, I think, the church in Colossae to you know to kind of trade letters, as it were, uh, with other churches in order for them to be instructed in the Word as well. As you may recall, Paul's initial ministry in Ephesus uh, extended throughout the province of Asia, like we read in uh, chapter 19, verse 1. And so when we read this letter, we can read it with perhaps you know, one congregation in mind, but also knowing that it was also intended for other churches as well. Of course, you know, as relevant as it is today, because all of God's word is relevant, you can read it in a sense with even Fellowship Bible Church in mind, that uh, God is writing uh, his word to us today. But it's important to understand the historical audience first uh, before we make that connection. Now, as we consider kind of the, the cultural milieu of the day, the historical setting, uh, you might know or have read before that Ephesus was home uh, to really a pantheon of gods, but really one primary, primary uh, goddess was that of Artemis, Artemis, the goddess of hunt. Uh, interesting idea. And uh, even more so, there was a massive temple to Artemis in Ephesus that 
served as a place of worship where animal sacrifices happened and other, of course, uh, pagan you know, practices took place as well. And so it was well known in this region, the goddess uh, Artemis, and many came uh, to worship the god there as well as many other kind of cultural gods of that day. And uh, this temple uh, was, is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And so this was a big deal, very big deal uh, in that day and age. But apparently the Christian faith had grown in Ephesus uh, despite you know, the very pagan culture of the day, so much so that it, uh, it affected the, the commerce in the city. Um, we didn't read it. Uh, I'll, I'll just read a few verses here from this section in Acts chapter 19. Paul's ministry had a real effect on the city, despite you know how large it is. You know, you would think that uh, well, you know, you know, what what effect would it have? You know, remember they started with 12 disciples. You know, is it really that big of a deal? Did they have that much of an influence? Maybe we feel that today. You know, what you know, what really influence do we have on Ann Arbor? But uh, certainly we can, and God is using us and other faithful churches in that way. And God was doing just that in this small, very you know, small beginnings church in Ephesus to, uh, that really ended up in a, in a big disruption. Uh, and we find this in Acts 19. There, uh, there in verse 23 says, uh, and about that time there arose a great commotion about the way, the Christian faith, for a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith who's made silver shrines of Diana, bought no small profit to the crafts, brought, excuse me, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. So there's the silversmith who makes shrines, makes idols of Diana, the goddess, and uh, through that, he, he brought a big profit uh, for uh, the craftsmen. He called them together with the workers of similar occupation and said, Men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, Asia this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. So not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. So, uh, you know, they're really frustrated here because, you know, the pockets aren't being filled like they used to be because there's many who are leaving the gods of, you know, of that day and age uh, for for the one true God, and, uh, you know, that's frustrating to them. Uh, verse 28, now when they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of, Ephesians, of the Ephesians. So the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater in one accord, having seized Gaius and uh, Aristarchus, uh, Macedonians, Paul's travel companions. And uh, when Paul wanted to go into the people, the disciples would not allow him. Then some of the officials of Asia, who were his friends, sent to him, pleading that he would not venture into the theater. Some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused, and most of them did not know why they had come together. 
So I think we know a lot of the rest of this, uh, this story here and what happened. But simply pointing out that, uh, you know, despite the meager beginnings of 12 disciples, really now this church had grown to an extent in which it was affecting the commerce. And, of course, you know, the people didn't like that. Uh, they were more focused on their pocketbooks than, you know, people following Christ. And, uh, and that was frustrating to them. Not only uh, did Christians in Ephesus face the challenge then of a highly pagan culture and many uh, who, who worshipped uh, Diana or one called Artemis, but also there was uh, the need to grow as a unified church made up of both Jews and Gentiles. Um, you know, some of the Gentiles that were a part of the church in Ephesus once worshipped the goddess Diana. So now they're coming into the church, and of course they've left that behind, but there's the cultural differences. You know, there was this high distinction between the Jewish community and the way in which they practiced their beliefs and the Gentiles and the worship of the pantheon of gods, and now they had to come together you know, under one faith, having been united together in that faith, and to learn to live together in unity. Um, Ephesians is unique amongst the epistles of Paul in that it does not seem to address any particular issues within the congregation or congregations. You know, think of 1 Timothy, which we just finished studying. There's the, the issue of false doctrine and the false teachers who are infiltrating the church and causing some to apostatize. But Paul doesn't necessarily directly uh, address any particular issue like that in Ephesians. Maybe that's another you know, kind of internal proof to the fact that Paul isn't writing to one particular congregation but to a number of congregations uh, and simply uh, admonishing them in, in a number of matters with one overarching theme, which we've already alluded to, uh, the idea of unity. But that, of course, even if you know, Paul isn't addressing one particular issue, that is, he's not reacting to some issue like he is, you know, for instance, in Corinthians, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, but really kind of uh, addressing you know, or preventing any issues from happening. Uh, that does not mean that there is not a unifying purpose to Paul's letter. There is purpose under you know, working, writing under the uh, superintending work of the Spirit. Paul is writing with a purpose, which we will look at here uh, next in just a moment. The structure of Ephesians clearly identi uh, uh, indicates that Paul wrote with a clear objective. And so we're not saying there's not an objective, but simply he's not reacting to any particular issue. And so as we consider then uh, why Paul writes, what objective, what theme really uh, drives this letter, I'd like to put forth this uh, idea that the principal theme of Ephesians is, uh, very simply put, unity in the church of God. Unity in the church of God. The book uh, centrally deals with, all, with unity of all things in Christ, with particular attention given to unity between Jew, Jew and Gentile in Christ. 
And this principle theme of unity works its way throughout the whole text. For instance, in chapter 1, it begins with the unity of all things and God's eternal plan. Chapters 2 and 3 narrow to humanity as a whole, showing that God designed for the nations, Jew and Gentile, to be united in one through Christ. Chapter 4 focuses on the unity of the church body, composed of those who had been have been redeemed uh, from a wider humanity. Chapter 5 focuses on the unity of families and the structure and activities necessary in order to maintain that unity. And chapter 6 concludes by focusing on individuals united with God's armor in order to fight against the spiritual principalities, powers, darkness. So let me briefly kind of restate that in a simple way. Chapter 1 begins with unity of all things in God's eternal plan. And so Paul begins by showing how God used Christ for his eternal purpose of redeeming people. Chapters 2 and 3 narrow to humanity as a whole, showing that God has designed from the very beginning for Jew and Gentile to be united in one under Christ. Chapter 4 focuses on the unity of the church body, But this church body, of course, is composed uh, of those who have been redeemed uh, from the wider humanity, that is, all of the people of the nations. Chapter 5 focuses on the unity of families and the structure and activities necessary uh, in order to maintain that unity. And then chapter 6 concludes by focusing on individuals united with God's armor in order to fight against the spiritual darkness. Now, I'd like to take uh, just a few minutes here, uh, or a number of minutes, to note the theme of unity as it's interwoven throughout Ephesians in a number of texts. And as we read this, note that it's not necessarily that the term unity is used in all of these texts, but the concept of unity is interwoven throughout the book of Ephesians. And so we begin in chapter 1 and work our way through this uh, as we see here this overarching theme of unity. Look with me in verse 7 to begin. Paul writes, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in himself that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one, there's the idea of unity, all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. Then uh, moving forward just to verse 22, we see uh, Paul writes, and he put all things under his feet, That is, uh, God put all things under Christ's feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And so Christ as head over the church unifies the church together, you know, creates order and structure in the church, uh, and he is the head of that, which is the body, Paul writes, the fullness of him who fills all 
in all. So even early on in chapter 1, we see that uh, under God's eternal purpose in Christ, he is unifying, unifying uh, all things under him, including the church with Christ uh, at the head. Then uh, look into chapter 2 here, verse 5 and 6. But uh, let me read in verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So what is God doing here? He has made us alive together with Christ and raised us up together. It made us sit together. You see the unity here being built around Christ and the work of Christ, uh, the results of Christ's work. Look uh, ahead at verses 11 through 13. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision or the Jewish faith, the Jewish community, made in the flesh by hands, So we're not talking about the spiritual circumcision, but those who are called that, uh, who have been circumcised in the flesh, that at the time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you, that is referring back to the Gentiles, what, is he, what does he say? You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And so what used to be two distinct communities, the people of God, the nation of Israel, and then you know the rest, as it were, God is now uh, drawing those Gentiles who he has redeemed and who he will redeem close to these promises, to the commonwealth, of Israel, the covenants. And uh, this even relates to the new covenant, which is given to the nation of Israel. But in some sense, we have been drawn near. That is, those Gentiles who are outside of that, you know, uh, that covenant, as it were, have been drawn near. And we'll, of course, get into that more as we get to this text and the implications of that. And so, but uh, going back to the idea of the theme of unity, uh, by doing this, God is creating unity within the church. He's not creating two different churches, you know, the Jewish church and the Gentile church with promises to one and different ones to the other, but drawing the Gentiles close, drawing them near, have been brought near by the blood of Christ so that we've all been bought by the same blood and uh, bought with that price. Look uh, at at verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made both, that is Jew and Gentile, what? One. And has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, 
And so uh, God has then made one out of two, one what he calls a new man, one body, as it were, from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, therefore putting to death the enmity. Um, I haven't dived into this enough to really uh, understand Paul's uh, real purpose here or what he means by this, but I perceive off the hand, and maybe I'll correct myself as we get to it, that the enmity that he speaks of is not just enmity between God and man before we were saved, but the enmity that, we, uh, that, there, were, that there was between Jew and Gentile. And uh, God has reconciled, yes, all of them to himself, but also to one another so that there is unity through the cross, through the work of the cross. Verse 17, And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. So the peace is for both. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. You see the repetition of the idea of one, which correlates uh, closely, obviously, with this idea of unity. We're all together, both together, both having access by one spirit to the Father. Look with me at verses 19 through 22. Really, chapter 2 is really rich with this theme of unity, even though, of course, he speaks to more than just that, uh, more detail. But look with me at verse 19. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We're all the same. You know, we're all together here in the household of God. We're all fellow citizens. We're saints uh, with the saints and members of the household of God. You know, there's not two-tiered membership here, you know, backstage access for the Jews and, you know, just uh, the audience for the Gentiles, but we're all together in the household of God. You know, it's not uh, not sons and servants, maybe a more kind of biblical analogy, but uh, tied to that culture of the day, but we're all sons, all together members of the household of God. Verse 20, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also being built together, unity, for the dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Look uh, with me at chapter 3. Paul begins, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the uh, dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which when you read you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. Verse 6, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. And so this mystery, which, you know, as we understand mystery, is something that was once not revealed but now has been revealed recently 
in this, in this context, this mystery that the Gentiles would be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ. Look at uh, verse 8. To me who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ. The idea of fellowship also relates to this concept of unity, does it not? The idea of communion, partnership, togetherness. So this mystery which has been revealed uh, in part has to do with the fellowship, the, the unity that we have in Christ, the togetherness that the body of Christ has, whether Jew or Gentile, whether slave or free, whether man or woman, as we read in other portions of the scriptures. Look with me at verses 14 and 18. I know, you know, we will cover this in more detail, but I just want to, before we get into the, you know, into the forest and into the trees, we want to understand how does this all relate together in one common theme. So look at verse 14. Paul writes, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the rich of his, riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, and this you here is not singular, it's plural, speaking to you know, all the saints, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you, you all, may be filled with all the fullness of God. Again, you know, the word unity not being uh, expressly used here, but the idea that together in Christ, through the strength that God provides through Christ, in the love that we express toward one another, we will be filled with all the fullness of God. Not just us individually, but the people of God, the body of Christ. Look uh, with me into chapter 4 now. Look with me uh, in verse 1. Paul writes, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling which you are called with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This is, you know, the well-known passage on unity, all the, the one references here. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Interesting idea even to uh, the Q&A last Sunday night about uh, the Father, you know, God being in us, not just the Holy Spirit, but, uh, you know, that kind of uh, inner 
Trinitarian oneness and with uh, in the believer, also uh, in the church as well, and in you all. So this is really kind of one of the you know kind of well really this is the transition between chapters one and three, which is kind of one unit, and chapters four and six, and. Uh, Paul uses this as kind of a, a catalyst uh, to then go into talking about how does, on the basis of the fact that we are all one in Christ, with one spirit, one Lord, one faith, what does that look like then as we practice that, you know, in our conduct? You know, we can think about, you know, all the theological implications of that and, you know, what that looks like and you know, the fact that, you know, Jew and Gentile are saved, you know, by both by believing in the work of Christ, you know, that's all good and great. We can agree on that, but what does that mean then as we live out our faith and we live out uh, uh, the work of Christ in the community of, of the Christians? Look uh, then at, uh, verses 11, at verse 11. He says, uh, And he gave himself some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry of ministry for the edifying of the body of Christ till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the son of god to a perfect man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ and really haven't made this connection till now that uh the perfect man here, I don't believe, is speaking of each individual person, but the man that he speaks about earlier on that has been created uh, when the Jews and Gentiles are brought together uh, to be one man, as he says earlier. And so Christ is, or the Lord is doing this um, through the believers and through the gifts which he variously gives to those believers for the edifying of the body of Christ, so that we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Look uh, then with me uh, later on in verse 25. Paul's now really getting into you know, the nuts and bolts of this. Is what, what does it look like to live out this unity? And here's some of the ways. Verse 25, therefore, putting away lying, let each, of you, each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. You know, there shouldn't be uh, you know, lying going on when, they're, when you're one body. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let him who stole no longer, uh, no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not, be, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Uh, and then he goes on to say a number of things we are to put away from, uh, from ourselves and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God and Christ forgave you. And so here's the real, you know, where the rubber meets the road of what it means to be united together in one body. On the basis that Christ forgave you, 
you're Gentile and Jew, if you're a Jew, on that basis, forgive one another. Uh, chapter 5, verse 2. And walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. So we walk in love toward one another. This, uh, this unit, the idea of unity is really contrasted uh, with uh, what he says in verse 6 and 7, which he says, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. So here we see the contrast here of, you know, of unity with those who aren't uh, you know, speaking that which is accords with the word of God. Those people we're not to be unified with. We're not to partake in fellowship with them. Uh, nor their doctrine, you know, their words. And so, you know, there's an extent where unity ends. It ends where false doctrine and, you know, and where, uh, you know, bad conduct begins. At that point, we have to break, you know, that fellowship for the sake of the unity of the body. Uh, if it's a believer, you know, we seek to restore them, reconcile them to the, to the church but unity has its boundaries. Finishing up then just uh, with one last section in chapter 5, verses 30 through 33. Paul writes, For we are, one mem- we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Here's an interesting idea here not uh, really broadly speaking about the church, but more specifically about entities within the church, such as the marriage relationship, where there is to be unity, one flesh. You know, we'll talk about later on, you know, what does that exactly mean? Uh, What does that look like? What does that entail? But, you know, we begin with the broader aspect of the body of Christ being unified, but part of that also relies on the unity within the smaller entities that make up the church, which, you know, one of the basic ones being uh, the marriage relationship. Uh, Verse 32, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is, of course, just a sampling, but many of the texts that help us, I hope, understand that there is this overarching principal theme of unity in the book of Ephesians. And Paul will address then that in, more, in particular in each instance which we read about. You know, what does that mean? What does that look like? One last thing I want to I just address, it's really a sub-theme or topic within uh, the broader theme of unity, is what uh, Paul says at the end of uh, a section here in chapter 5, He talks about not being drunk with wine, but filled with the Spirit. And then what does that look like? You know, what is a person who's influenced by the Spirit look like? It's one who's speaking to one another in psalms and hymns. Spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 21 of chapter 5, submitting to one another in the fear of God. 
And uh, I just wanted to give one explanation as we kind of look at the broader structure here of the, of, the, of the letter, that submitting to one another isn't left up to, you know, interpretation. You know, we might say, well, submitting to one another sounds a lot like every person's to submit to one another. So, you know, uh, you know there's, no, there's no kind of hierarchy, no kind of structure within this. It's just everyone submits to one another. And, uh, you know, we might like the sound of that. And, uh, you know, for churches who, you know, allow for women preachers and all of that kind of thing, say, this is great. You know, this sounds a lot like, you know, we're all on the same playing, you know, field, so to speak. But I don't think that's at all what Paul is saying. In fact, he calls us to submit, and then he tells us what that looks like. What does that look like in the marriage relationship? And he goes on to tell us. What does that look like for slaves? He tells us. What does that look like for masters? And so it's not necessarily just everyone submitting to one another, but it's submitting within the, the constructs that God has laid out, whether it be the, the marriage relationship or you know, the, uh, the slave and the master. As we close here this evening, I uh, just want to draw one uh, your attention to just generally the high-level outline of Ephesians. Uh, chapters 1 through 3 focus on the doctrine of salvation, although still maintaining this theme of unity. And then, uh, then Paul transitions in chapter 4, beginning with you know, a key term, therefore, and then going on then in chapters 4 through 6 to demonstrate uh, and to flesh out what, is, uh, you know, what does our calling look like on a day-to-day basis and uh, through, you know, the kinds of practical behaviors that we should have, having been called by God to live as Christians ought. So chapters 1 through 3 focus on the doctrine of salvation, amongst other themes or topics. Chapters 4 through 6, the practical outworking of that. So Paul helped then his readers recognize the blessings of new life that God had given them in Christ Jesus in the first three chapters, and then guides them in how their calling should affect their corporate and individual experience in a variety of areas of life in chapters 4 through 6, which we'll look at, Lord willing, in the weeks ahead. Let's uh, close in a word of prayer here this evening. Heavenly Father, we pray now as we go our way, would you bless uh, our time, our week? Lord, may we endeavor to not only understand what Paul has written to us, but Lord, the day-to-day outworking of that. It's easy to talk about unity, to preach and teach about it, to agree about it, but Lord, it's tough, uh, tougher to really live that out. And uh, Lord, as you called us to do that, Lord, help us even this week, whether it be in the marriage relationship, whether it be Uh, toward other authorities that we have been submitted ourselves to or whether it be the body of Christ or first and foremost our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ Lord uh, we thank you for the unity that we have with him having been united to Christ in Christ's name we pray amen